0: It should be uncomfortable and it should be remembered and it should not happen again because things can and should be better. And that's part of the theme that we have started with when looking at the Sermon on the Mount and particularly starting with the Beatitudes that things can and should be better. And they are better when God is on the throne. That doesn't mean that suffering and persecution and oppression doesn't happen. And so... I draw our attention to a couple of things as I try and launch forward into today's topic as we look and delve a bit deeper into some of the, or one of the Beatitudes. And I've put on some of the tables just a bit of a, an outline of kind of directional trajectory of where I'm heading that may well help. In, if you wanted to jot some things down as I went through my various headings, I've partly done that because it's going to help me this morning. Um, I'm hoping that um, you'll be able to stick with me for a few moments as we try and delve a little deeper into a couple of important topics that may help us frame some important thoughts of what God is doing in the world and in and through us. But certainly by way of brief Recap: That last week we looked at how the Sermon on the Mount was set on a, a mountain, not a traditionally understood sacred place. And you can listen, if you wanted to, listen to catch up on um, uh, on on what's it called on the podcast. Um, we also looked at how often in the Sermon on the Mount, it's, you have heard it said. But I say to you, and Jesus is encouraging us perhaps to remain curious and inquisitive. The goal, one of the goals is the boundless goodness of God to be encountered. We reflected on how blessed is an already existing state of happiness and good fortune, that they affirm a quality that is already present. But also we reflected and on how heaven in this context is God's space where full reality exists, close by our ordinary earthly reality and interlocks with it. So what is Jesus doing with the Sermon on the Mount? He's announcing, he's embodying, he's enacting the kingdom of God. He's announcing and he's embodying and he's enacting the king. Essentially, Jesus is saying this, this is what Life is like with God as your prime minister, as your president, as your as your chief, as your lord, as your monarch, however, in that, that when God is in charge, this is what life should be like. The Sermon on the Mount perhaps is Jesus' government's manifesto of sorts. It's the politics of of Jesus, the politics of love. And in fact, when we read these statements, if they are just dimmed down to nice, fluffy things that we remember, then I would say we have significantly missed the truth that they are revealing for our lives and our society. And so unless we believe the one who is saying these things... And often, there are many we don't believe. But unless we believe the one who is saying these things, these things are actually quite unbelievable. Jesus is revolutionising and redefining life itself with the reign of God. Let's remind ourselves a little bit of the context, perhaps, that he was in at that time, because that's always helpful for us to understand what that may be illuminating for us, that... Of course, the Roman government was the superpower and dominant culture of the day, that there were some significant parts of Judaism that were expecting the coming of the Messiah, that on that return there would be a revolt, and overturn, uh, overthrow the power of the Roman government, restoring them to their rightful place that a particular region had been shrouded in wars and rumours of wars. There was much going on when Jesus said these words. The Beatitudes themselves, by way of further delving, they are there to subverse the established order. That they're there And they are the counterintuitive wisdom of God that turns the assumed values of a superpower culture on its head. They turn things upside down. For some, they invoke joy. For others, they are a threat. When we read these words, we are faced with who we are. Not just individually, but corporately, and let's not kid ourselves in the West, in the West, in which we grow up and are born, and the system that we have has been for a long time a system of superpower, and that's what it is. There would, as a wider culture, we would not be the oppressed nor the outcast. There may be on a smaller scale that that is the case in many of our lives and worlds of which we live and work. But that can make us all, myself included, uncomfortable. And it should, because it did. So there's something that when we hear these words, something that we have to. Reflect on, dwell on, dig into. So, we come to this morning, the beatitude, that God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and righteousness and justice are interchangeable terms, words in that sense. In the message version of this beatitude, it says, you're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you've worked up an appetite. One writer kind of does their own reflection and says, blessed are those who ache for the world to be made right. For them, the government of God is a dream come true. Blessed are those who ache for the world to be made right. Hunger and thirst, working up, aching. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Can you think of a time where you've been so hungry and so thirsty we don't live in a a culture ourselves where that level of hunger and thirst is so prevalent perhaps for us so perhaps some of the depth of these words are slightly lost unless we've experienced them in some way to hunger and thirst, how often do we perhaps say wow I'm starving, really? Really? The closest couple of reflections that I could have in my, in my own life are perhaps where I've been on a prolonged period of intense exercise. And at the end of that five minutes... <laughs> all right, three, fair enough. <laughs> I'm so desperately thirsty that, that when the lactic acid is going and I'm desperate for a drink and I have to get out of the gym And oh, oh, give me a drink of water drink, and, and I have to act because I'm so desperate for a drink there's something when we hunger and thirst I remember some years ago when I was on holiday and we uh, walked up um, uh, Mount Sinai and didn't Uh, take a drink with me, and we had a few hours to walk up and a couple of hours to walk down, then in the sun, and my mouth was so dry, and I was so thirsty. Had to act. See, sometimes physical needs describe spiritual realities. Physical needs describe spiritual realities, this metaphorical language that Jesus uses, and many, particularly in his... Culture when, and in the first century would have known the unrelenting hunger and life-threatening thirst. Notice that Jesus does not say, blessed are those who live righteously and maintain a righteous life. But rather in this beatitude says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness. Now, there'll be many other passages of scripture that perhaps minds are wondering to. That's okay. Don't go there and lose the point of this. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. The blessed are not those who arrive, but are those who pursue, who continue, who persist. Blessed are those who strive at whatever the cost toward a more perfect righteousness. We'll get into what righteousness can be in a moment. But perhaps blessed are those that is the constant relentless drive toward righteousness that characterises the blessed. I'm reminded of a couple of parables in Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46 the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything that he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout, a merchant on the search for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. The kingdom is not the pearl, but rather is likened to the searching merchant. And this beatitude is like this parable. The kingdom is likened to the searching merchant. The hunger and the thirst is not for earning, but it is a deep yearning that things can be better. Part of the blessing of the kingdom is the participation, the action, the involvement, wherever we are, whoever we're with, whatever we're doing. Those who are frustrated, unconvinced, dissatisfied, not content with the status quo, yours is the kingdom of God. It is perhaps in some backward, inside-out, upside-down way that being unsatisfied, that somehow we are satisfied by God alone. And only in God do we find true satisfaction. When you look around at work, school, college, university, society, what do you see and hear that you are dissatisfied with? a colleague mistreated, a person overlooked, someone disqualified or discounted in some way. What do we see? Are we hungry and thirsty? Or are we pacified? Do we have the dummy in our mouth? where we're just satisfied with the status quo. Many of us perhaps will have had these or used them as parents or grandparents in different ways. We borrowed this off Matt and Vicky. It's not Matt's, he's told me it's the girls. Are we pacified by the status quo? Or are we hungry and thirsty? So what about righteousness? When we hear that word, well, I'll give you some of my poor Hebrew and poor Greek. The root word for righteousness, Siddaka. Now, this does not refer to an absolute ideal ethical norm but is out and out a term denoting relationship. Part of the root word for righteousness is about relationship. The Greek word, dikaiuzone, means righteousness and justice. It's action. That God is interested in both personal spirituality relationship, as well as putting things right in society. Now, every relationship makes claims on conduct, and it is the agreement of that conduct and that, it, that, and that satisfaction of those claims that the relationship exists, As by way of example. Perhaps parent to child. There's an unsaid, perhaps sometimes said agreement of our conduct of what we expect from one another for a healthy, whole, life-giving relationship to exist. Within a marriage, I, I, I am hungry and thirsty for the best for my wife. For her to be the best that she can be, to do the best that she can do but I am hungry and thirsty for me to be the best that I can be for her and vice versa. That there are a way that we treat one another, speak to one another, speak about one another, do things for others out of our love for one another. However it may look, there is some sort of claim on the conduct that we have in the relationships that we have with one another. There is something within that realm of relationship with God. And actually, righteousness is like a diamond that has many different sides in that sense. I'm going to try my best in a few minutes to give us a few reflections on this diamond. So please, hopefully, I'll do my best for us to stay together on it and there'll be something in there for each of us from God. But righteousness, as we hear hunger and thirst for righteousness, refers to the mighty acts of God to save. I reference Micah 6 verses 3 to 5. The prophet writes, Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord." In some versions it may say faithfulness of the Lord. In others it may say saving acts of God. God reviews his past mighty acts in history to save Israel and calls them to remember them. And the declared purpose for for reminding them of those things are the righteous acts of God to save Now, these saving acts of which there would be many we could remember in the Bible and many that perhaps we could remember in our own lives are not only to deliver Israel, but also to grant her a new status. Now, righteousness as we hear it is not just about God's saving acts, but is also to do with declaring righteousness over Israel over you and I in the sense of Gentiles being grafted in. So I'm going to read this quote, the best one that I could find to help possibly sum it up. This is by a um, a biblical scholar called Rudolf Bultmann, and he says this, righteousness does not mean the ethical quality of a person. It does not mean any quality at all, but a relationship. That is the Greek term for righteousness is not something a person has as their own rather it is something that they have in the verdict of the forum to which they are accountable i.e. Karen and I, our forum that we are accountable is our marriage. The actions that we have toward one another out of the relationship that we have, we are accountable in the vows that we have made. The commitment that we have given to one another is the forum to which we are accountable. God's saving acts out of relationship then make that relationship with God the the forum to which we are accountable so he goes on to say Matthew 5 and verse 6 obviously does not mean those who ever striving and endeavor to attain ethical perfection but those who long to have God pronounce the verdict righteous as his decision over them in the judgment So, he's not saying that this righteousness is about our ethical standard of the lives that we live, but actually, the righteousness that is referred to here is that hunger and thirst for righteousness out of the relationship with God that he also says, you are righteous. You are the beloved of God and belong to the family of God you are my children so i give us a couple of examples from scripture Uh, Isaiah 54, verses 10 to 17, I'm only going to reference 10, 14 and 17, where the prophet writes, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. This is Old Testament stuff. In righteousness, you shall be established. In righteousness in the justice of God you shall be established you shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear and from terror for it shall not be it shall not come near you no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall uh, you shall refute every tongue that arises against you in judgment this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me declares the Lord God primarily brings us into relationship, and that relationship is because of God's gracious righteousness and compassion, not because of our ethical rightness, nor to do with our national identity, nor to do with a tribal identity or a nation to which we belong. Oh, there we go. So, how do we respond to God's goodness? How do what is God's expectation? Some of that for us to act to show mercy and compassion to the outcast, the oppressed, the weak, the orphan, and the widow. Thanks, mate. Of course, it wouldn't be the same if there wasn't appearance from you. Thank you. So. Job 29, 14 to 16. This is such an important verse to grab hold of today. Job, and you know the story of Job who loses everything, going through an awful time. He says, This: I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I put on righteousness. What was his righteousness? What was his justice? I was the eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. The righteousness that Job claims for himself are compassionate acts for the weak and vulnerable, not the objective application of a law or code, but the righteousness. That he draws on are acts of compassion to the least of these. So, what about Jesus? Again, in Isaiah 42, verse 3, prophetically speaking of the suffering servant a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench he will faithfully bring forth justice the nature of justice that this unique servant of God will demonstrate are compassionate acts on behalf of the broken and the exhausted so when we are broken and exhausted and feel the pressure of life and perhaps we are the outcast in fact Many times before in fact of course when God brought in the Gentiles of which we are we would have been the outcast. But yet in the story of God he's saying I'm going to deal kindly with you. You're bruised. I'm not going to bruise you anymore. This is not going to be a harsh beating. This is compassionate acts of kindness that are righteousness this is the heart of God and the way of Jesus so what about in Micah chapter 6 and verses 6 to 8 we're coming into close in just a couple of minutes with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high the question is asked Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I come before God with my sacrifices? Shall I come before God with all that I have and say, Lord, it's yours and that will make me righteous in your sight? But he has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? And to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That Micah continues to clarify this definition, this facet of righteousness by recalling God's righteousness in delivering his people. So we follow that model that God's righteous acts, saving others, that God's righteousness, of relationship that we respond to, we follow suit in the same way that God has treated us. And when we do so, may I say this, that as the Bible says, righteousness is connected to peace. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, the effect it says in Isaiah 32, the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation. In secure dwellings and quiet resting places. Happy are those who sow beside all waters. Who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. Righteousness is also connected to peace. God's righteousness is found in his saving acts. God's righteousness is most compassionately revealed in Jesus. That God's righteousness alone declares us righteous, not our own good deeds. Our response to God's righteousness is to follow his example. And treat others in the same manner. That justice and compassion for those who are weak, outcast, oppressed. That righteousness brings peace. Those who hunger and thirst. Who ache. Who are worked up. For righteousness. Yours is the kingdom of God. This isn't an earning. It's a gift. But as a consequence of that gift, there is a yearning. An ache that everything is not okay. And things can be better. And things are better in the kingdom of God When God is on the throne This church is a very political beatitude And the teachings of Jesus more robustly understood Have significant political consequences in the culture in which it was written He challenged the politics of Roman imperialism and Jewish nationalism at the time Although I say Jesus was a committed Jew himself, in no way is that comment in any way anti-Jewish. He was challenging that thought of the day and he did so with the politics of love. He was executed by the state for political reasons and Jesus was not an adherer to any of the political statements of the day but that of love. So... What can we take away? Perhaps as surmise, I summarize, I recognise a slightly more biblical study-oriented morning on a Sunday. Firstly, God deals with people compassionately, not flippantly. And that goes for you and for me. So if in any way we think that God is not dealing with us compassionately, I would say that that is not God. The injustice, the suffering, the pain that we go through is not God inflicting it upon people. Churches, I think perhaps, although they go hand in hand, I would say this, perhaps can focus less on ethically, morally, right behaviours, although they are important, and begin rather to ache and groan and hunger and thirst for action and change to happen, both individually and on a bigger corporate scale. I think perhaps it very much harks to one of our own core values, to promote justice. And when I read this beatitude, to hunger and thirst for righteousness as a church body, Our aim will be to hunger and thirst for righteousness, but that doesn't mean that the only way we do that is by volunteering at Connect. In no way is this a sermon for anybody to feel that oh, I have to go and do stuff. No, that's not the case. Perhaps this is more a message that when we open our eyes in our ongoing activity as we go, that we are not pacified but for those we share our lives with, we will be a voice for those who have no voice. Is there action that we can take in the lives that we lead?